Alright, there we go. Excellent. Yay! Alright, we are all... We are bravo for launch here. Guys, ladies, everyone, hello. Uh, so, today I'm going to start uh, with a couple of topics. Uh, not, might check, talk in with you guys, see what you guys want to talk about. But I'm going to start off going off, as it were, on a few topics. A few things have occurred the last couple of days that, uh, you know, I want to talk about a little bit. Just as a, uh, as an exercise in education. For you and me, we can, like, talk our way through these things that have happened and help us make sense of the world with them. And, of course, we're going to start with the story that everyone's talking about, uh, you know, obviously that's pretty hilarious when you consider where we are on the knife's edge of the collapse of capitalism as we know it, and a public health crisis the likes of which we've never experienced in the modern era. But nothing to do about any of that. What we can do is have a lot of fun at the expense of, once again, everyone's favorite uh, lace curtain buffoon, Joe Biden. Joseph Robinette Biden, who today on The Breakfast Club uh, went ham, as the kids say, uh, and claimed that if you don't, if you vote, if you don't vote for Joe Biden, then you ain't black, which, ah, just the most perfect morsel of any, oh God, it's beyond, it's a perfect bite. Uh... Not so much because he said it. You know, he's Joe Biden. Of course he's going to say something like that. The whole point of Joe Biden's candidacy is that it represents the same way Trump's does, like the end state of, its par of the party that he represents in this moment of crisis. Like, the relationship between the Republican Party and its base is such that by now they have Trump, a perfect reflection of what they want, a perfect embodiment of everything they want out of a, out of a president. He's them. He is a peevish, incurious... Uh, bitter, uh, uh, um, bitter even though God-blessed, angry even though un incredibly fortunate. Uh, he, he is who they were, he, he represents. He is a perfect representation of the party because the party is now in a, position, in a situation where it has got this transparent relationship between its, uh, its base and its, and its political structure. The Democrats are the reverse, of course, because they would have to be. And they have created a situation where nobody gets what they want out of, their, the, out of the candidate. How there is no sense of, like, visceral uh, uh, um, you don't get any fucking of the old, uh, the old juice that, uh, like, black people got when Obama was president, or uh, that women were supposed to get when Hillary won. Uh, and the, the Republican, old Republicans get with Trump. This sense of, I am validated by the president. This is saying, the, the Democrats now are saying, no, no one gets that because we're left with him. Because in order to maintain the structure, in order to maintain our interests, and in order to deny that there's anything like class or, or you know, um, political or, or access to capital having to do with political power, and we're not going to challenge the existing parameters of that, and we're going... We have nothing to offer you because what we used to offer you was at least no nothing's changing in the post in the in the new neoliberal era nothing's changing but 
you can get re represented. You can get some fun, just like Republicans. Nothing's changing, but our guys are going to get, uh, they're going to trigger the libs more, and they're going to be more oafish. They're going to be more like you. And, and, and they both got that offer. But now uh, the, the Democrats were forced to pick someone because they couldn't get anyone else. No one else had established the position where they were credible the way Obama was to embody some you know segment of their coalition. They got a guy who maintained loyalty to enough Democrats because of their memory of him associated with Obama. So it's, it's like a contact high. It's already a second order thing. It's, huff, it's smoking the resin. It's, it's a desperation move. And now they have to try to sell that to a general election uh, uh, electorate, which is not nearly the same thing. Uh, and that means that their only move, since they cannot offer the thing that their party has traditionally offered, uh, they have this this old mummy who represents no one, who who represents the worst in the party from an ideological perspective, whose 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 record is 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 everything that these people claim to care about, and his record on all axes of of, of intersectional oppression, he's bad. So what the hell are you supposed to say? What are you supposed to think? You're supposed to say and think Trump is worse. Therefore, you are morally obligated to vote for Biden. Now, that was always the, the gun to the head of every Democratic voter, right? But there was always something else, too. There was some positive part. There was some, some joy to be had in the Democratic tent, some sense that you were representing a, 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 a more progressive social vision. Gone now. That's out the window with, with Biden. It's purely and only an appeal to negative emotions about Trump. There is nothing else. And because Biden is the transparent embodiment of his party's relationship to their base, because of his dementia and his lack of filter, he, he is, when challenged, pushed back to the only real argument he has. I'm not Trump. Go vote for Trump if you don't like me. He was saying that shit during primaries, when people had other options. And now he's saying it in the general. Because that's the only, only uh, appeal they have. And of course, nobody wants to hear that because it really does show you the degree to which they have you completely over a barrel. If you accept their premise, that is. If you accept the premise that Trump, that the Republican winning is always the worst outcome and, uh, and that there's like no context in which a Republican winning in the short term could lead to anything good, it's all one disaster after another, until somehow we interrupt that by electing a Democrat and fixing it and like wiping the slate clean, I don't know how that's supposed to work. Uh, but that's that's their whole that's their claim of how this shit uh, goes down is you've got a Republican and we're all terrified of him and you are you are required to vote for him and but that means is that you can make no claims on them there is no pressing them forward there is no being an activist there is no seeing anything better done because you have no leverage like Zerlina Maxwell the other day said uh, Biden has to nominate a black woman as VP. And a million people asked her, I don't think she responded, what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't for Zelina? Because there's no answer. There's no response. Someone actually said, uh, I'll be unhappy, uh, I'll, I'll vote for Trump, Biden, but I'll do it angrily. You, I mean, the degree to which you have to acknowledge that you don't have a choice is the degree to which you feel powerless in this. And that's bad enough for voters, it's even worse for these fucking opinion uh columnists and thought leaders and political operatives who are supposed to give the impression and intent uh, of themselves as having political influence and power. Like the whole point, that the reason they're in politics is not supposed to be for personal advancement, right? 
They're Democrats. They're good people. They're politics to help. But they know, but they can't say, I'm, I'm voting for uh, Biden because he's better than Trump and there's nothing that could happen that could change that. Emphasizing that only, um, only undermine, only makes everyone ask the question that Bob's did in office space. What is it you do here? What are you for? You have this, the party and the candidate will do what they want. You have no place in this. All you are doing is to justify what they do after they say it. And if everyone sees that as your role, as just this uh, propagandist, you lose a lot of credibility, or at least they're afraid you they will. And so they hate it. And so a kind of thing like this today is so juicy because they all freak out and they all have to spaz and figure out some sort of justification for why this isn't on its face awful. And of course, they could, the one thing they could say is it's not going to matter. And the thing is, yes, that's true. That's the hilarious part of all of this is that the, the, the truth undergirding even the the harsher truth undergirding the harsh truth of their hot, the fact that they're hostages to Biden is the fact that they don't have any influence in any way, even if it wasn't Biden. The whole class of people they're squawking are purely ornamental. They're talking to each other and trying to convince us that they have some reason for the perch that they have, assume, some reason they have a check mark. They have some value add. And they do not, but they immediately and instinctively when something like this comes up, get the need to express their actual use. I'm actually useful to this process and I'll express you why. And that requires them to then get the fucking knots to try to explain why what Biden said is okay. Why is that fine? I mean, my God, does, as uh, my friend Dan Kay said, does that mean that, uh, that Diamond and Silk aren't black and Rachel Dole's all is? Are we at that level? You want to make those, you want to, you want to strip race of all, uh, of all like non, uh, you, you want to strip race of, of, of everything except just total social signifiers, go for it. But to just say that out loud in violation of so many carefully constructed uh, towers of bullshit that these people have spent years making so that you don't notice, hey, maybe this is bullshit. Maybe all this uh, intersectionality is just getting us more awful Republicans and awful Democrats and nothing is getting better. Maybe there's no intersecting at all. Maybe it's just parallel roads that lead to the fucking shit gutter. Maybe we should do something about this. No, no, no. Don't you see? No, no. Race is a delicate dance and it needs to be acknowledged at every level and, and we need to intersect it with all these other things. And then you got a guy like Biden saying... You hate black people. Hey, look, look up, look black. Vote for me, or else you're you're a honky. Destroys their entire thing. It destroys everything they've done because they have to defend it. They have to defend it. And how do they defend it? There's a bunch of different ways. One guy, I'm going to go through a few tweets here in response to this because I think it's just all of it is so fucking uh, instructive. This isn't a big guy, but I just wanted to point this out for, for, for like the older boomery Biden supporter, like the real boomers, as opposed to the younger people who are, you know, they're all on the, on the arm. They're all just Democratic flack operatives one way or the other. Um, but this guy is like, he speaks sort of for the, for the older white boomers who like Bernie because they hate uh, Biden's uh, 
or they hate uh, they hate they hate Trump because of his uncouthness, the fact that he that he violates all their norms and expectations of what government should be. But look what years has done. Look what the years have done to this guy. Look at what all those years of uh, of beholding the monster of Trump. This is really the Nietzsche. This guy is is warning. This is the Nietzschean warning. You know, he who fights monsters risks becoming one. If you stare into the abyss too long, the abyss stares back. So this guy says Chris Jackson is his name, and he's a blue check dickhead, uh, and I think like a Trump replier. And he says this. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Joe Biden is going to be Joe Biden, regardless of what you think. And personally, that's why I like him. He's real. He's authentic. And he's, going to, he's gone through far too much in his life to give a shit what blue checks say about him on Twitter. Okay. That is just, to a word, what people say to defend Trump. I mean, identical. That's exactly how people talk about Trump. When the, the, the Clorox thing, uh, uh, every time he said something racist, like the, sh the shithole countries, they're saying he's being honest. Trump's honest and he's a real man, okay? And you can't accept that. And I think what these guys saw over the time is that they kept yelling, that's not fair at Trump as he just kept ignoring all the rules. And they realized they want to do it too. That's where their joy is going to come from. Not ideological, of course. Get out of here. They don't care about any of that. Not, but now instead of like getting pleasure from denying themselves those, those sweets, those sweet indulgences of politics, they can just gorge. And they're going to go to town. And, these, and, they're, and at some point, all these old, white, fucking aggrieved idiots are going to realize that they really have nothing uh, separating them. They're all the same class... They all have the same broad interests. They all have the same reactionary social view of, of younger people, basically. At some point, they're going to realize, what's, let's just fucking fuse around one character, one candidate. And then, of course, uh, my favorite, Hannah Jones, Pulitzer Prize winner for her work with the 1619 Project, which I've talked about on here about how that is... The whole premise of that thing, from what I understand, is baloney. Reading this certainly makes me think my, my, my instinct on that is correct. And that all those people who fled to defend it uh, from guys like James McPherson, uh, what, just because Ben Shapiro said it was bad, that meant it had to have been good? Just absolute tribalistic uh, uh, reflexiveness, none of it having anything to do with the real questions at hand. Very disappointing every time you see it. You hate to see it. Uh, so Hannah, jo Hannah Jones, who worked on the 1619 Project and is a, Democrat, a, a proud Democrat, says, there is a difference between being politically black and being racially black. I'm not defending anyone, but we all know this and should stop pretending that we don't. Someone replies, what does this mean? She said, if you don't know, it ain't for you, which... That is how politics works generally, is you make a political claim and then when people ask you for more information, you say, it's not my job to educate you. Uh, and so she, the person replies, I'm not the only one that asks. I'm also a black person. To which she replied, yes, I'm capable of seeing your avatar. And I will repeat, if you don't understand the difference between being born slash designated a certain race and having taking up a particular set of racial politics, I am not going to educate you here. So, obviously, like I said, this just destroys all this carefully crafted uh, years of talking about how, like, race is this fundamental aspect of American life, right? Like, this, this shit is like, like the ta coats thing, you know? The brand, 
1916 Project, too. The idea that racism is a scarring brand across America that is so inextricably fused with capitalism that it can't be unbroken from it. And that, therefore, you know, basically, racism is as defeatable as capitalism, which, if capitalism isn't defeatable because of the racism, I guess you just have to live with it, but maybe you can reduce the racial part. The capitalism, you can't really do anything about. So, obviously, that's part of it. Uh, but so that all goes out the window. All that goes out the window. That thing that they spent all these years that she won a Pulitzer Prize writing about out the window. It's gone now. This invalidates the entire thing. Because if 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 if, if race and politics are that broke, breakable apart, then race is not the indelible, daily, mute, scarring and punishing and traumatizing element that drives all. Uh, white and black people apart and means that they can never really come together and that therefore uh, racism can never really be overcome just like capitalism can't, only mitigated. Destroys gone. Blow, pull. Blew it over in one second. Why? Not to make sure that Biden gets reelected or gets elected. It's not going to matter. Nothing she says is going to matter at the level of a fucking uh, candidacy this laid out, this far for the election. No, it's to preserve her place pace in the hierarchy. Because people are going to say, you like this Biden guy, you also are supposed to be a racism expert. What do you think what he said? You, you can't say he is, I condemn him, because you can't not vote for him. Oops. So, all you can do is say it actually wasn't bad. And so the first thing that comes to mind, regardless of how it conflicts with everything else she's, she believes and everything else she's ever written... But first thing that comes to mind, just to save your ass a little bit. And then she ended up deleting it, so it didn't even work. The wicked flee when none pursueth. It's really funny. Uh, but they did all that. Uh, they destroyed their entire project. Their entire attempt at like reifying neoliberalism as in, as in as inextricably linked and metaphysically connected to, to racism, meaning you cannot address class in any way because that's not addressing race. Because class means people other than the affected racial group. Therefore, by definition, you cannot talk about class and race at the same time. It can only be race or class. And so... Destroyed the whole thing. I mean, it's goddamn beyond everything, Ed Tom. For a one-second reprieve from judgment that didn't even work. Uh, it's it's pretty stunning. Uh, it's a crazy world. They ought to sell tickets. Hell, I'd buy one. And then... There's my favorite, Dr. Jason Johnson, uh, the foe of Birdie Bros, uh, another fucking hack idiot who goes on MSNBC to, to say that Bernie wasn't intersectional enough or whatever the fuck, says, just a thought, how about we listen to the entire Joe Biden interview with Charlemagne the God before we start roasting him? A white man telling a black man who isn't, isn't racist, isn't black, isn't excusable. But what led to that exchange and why Biden was triggered matters as well. Well, then it is excusable, right? Because if it's inexcusable, then nothing can mitigate that. That's what inexcusable means. 
that there's no situation that could mitigate the fact of the inexcusableness. If, if Biden's triggering, the idea of Biden being triggered, obviously hilarious, uh, couldn't affect that. So it's excusable. You're excusing it. In fact, you are excusing it by bringing it up because it's not like this is, this is like a piece of shattered cuneiform found in a fucking, the, the plains of Nineveh or something. It's a goddamn interview that happened fucking five minutes before he said that. You can look at the tape. So that means that just say, hey, I didn't say anything was a killing blow. I mean, nothing's going to change in any of these or for any of these people. That's not part of this. This is all just about making sense of things in my head so that I don't go crazy and hopefully having other people like tell me to the degree or which I'm not. None of it's changing anything. It's certainly not going to change any of their views. Their views aren't determined by reasonable uh, dialogue. They're determined by social hierarchy and the, the need to maintain it. That's not something you can argue against. So what's the point? It's just me talking to myself, literally. So... All of them, all of these people have spent years and years and years cultivating their expertise uh, to us, the great unwashed, as speakers on all issues of, of social trauma and justice, along racial lines, along gender lines, have decided in the last three months that none of it matters, that it's all bullshit, they don't believe a word of it, uh, because they are in a relationship with the Democratic Party where their fortunes and its, its are inextricably linked and their interests are fused at the level of its, uh, its class project, I mean, furthering oligarchy. That's what the Democratic Party is for. And they have decided that their role is to be courtiers of that. And, and if that's the extent, they're lashed to the mast and they're going down with the ship. And all that's left for them to do is reassure each other that, no, we're not all sellout morons. No, no, we're principled, smart people. And here's the proof. And along those lines, another thing happened just a few days ago on the Twitters, on the Twittering machine, that speaks to this exact same phenomenon. I'm talking about the whole Gia Tolentino thing about her parents being human traffickers. Uh... I'm not going to talk really that much about the case. It's not her fault what her parents are, did. Now, the fact that she wrote about her parents in part of her memoir that's about herself and her, you know, her struggle with America's systems of oppression, she painted them as hard scrabble uh, uh, immigrants, uh, not as human traffickers, even though they did the human trafficking already at that point. That's an admission so huge that it's a lie, basically. I'm sorry. Uh, so then she, that's why when this comes up again, she feels the need to backfill and explain their behavior because she, she had the moment where she could have said my parents were human traffickers and she could have dealt with it, but it would have made it harder for her to ingratiate herself to her memoir audience and to the people who read her fucking articles in The New Yorker. So she just decided to skip all that awful, awkward stuff, that painful stuff that it's so painful to write about. And so... That's it. It's like people say, why did she even say anything? She has to. She already staked her reputation on her virtue and the virtue she inherited from her family. 
that's what happens when you make your your career as an as a as a writer about you as a person. You're fucked. You cannot have a reasoned view of it. You can't uh, you know take the jaundiced eye because you've already uh, decided that you're going to take a cheat code instead of uh, engaging at the level of pros or insight. You're going to do pure personal uh, um, uh, uh, ingratiation. And that means your parents can't be human traffickers because then it's like, wait a minute, aren't you just another snot-nosed rich kid of privilege and exploitation who's now, what, probably got her parents paying for her uh, loft in New York so that she can play Carrie Bradshaw? Why should I listen to you? But anyway, the thing that was most interesting and most baffling and horrifying to watch and just shameful was not her whole thing attempting to, to defend her parents. It was the instantaneous and overwhelming flood of fellow writers at every level of media, not just the general media, but the left media as well. Essentially, everybody on the current affairs masthead got into the back, uh, the, the, got into the cuddle puddle of, of, uh, of reassurance to her that it's okay. It's so bad that you all even had to write this. Oh, the person whose entire career is writing about her life uh, has to write about her parents' criminality? Wow. I can't believe they, the nerve. How dare anyone ask this of someone when that's their entire fucking uh, value add as a goddamn media figure. And But they weren't doing this for her, of course. Most of them don't know her. I mean, some of them do. It's a very tight club. It's very chummy. But most of them don't know her personally. What they know about her, though, is that one, she's one of them, meaning she's a media person. And that means two things. Two, uh, that means she's a media person, which means one, she could do something for them in their careers at some point. If, they're, if, they, have, if they have enough fun badinage on Twitter, maybe there's a DM. Hey, you know, uh, could you show an editor this? So at that level, just to maintain uh, friendly relations and like score good person points with a person who they could later use. The other being that, hey, I want to make sure everyone has my back when it turns out, when everyone finds out that I, my parents were slave owners. Because they all have family that are slave owners because they only get to write like that because they're all fucking rich kids. There are a few who aren't. Of course, there are exceptions. But the meritocracy broke a long ago and it became a system for reproducing the meritocrat, the, 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 the arist they, they turned the meritocratic... Uh, uh, positions that people established in, in the t earlier 20th century and turned them now into aristocratic sinatures. And so all these people are just rich people's kids to, uh, writing about it to each other. And so they know that people find just like the slave guy. How many people came out of the woodwork when that guy's paper about, yeah, my family owned a slave. Uh, then I had the slave. Eventually I decided to pay her minimum wage. I felt kind of bad about it. Oh, now I'm going to die so you can't uh, drag me. How many people came out of the woodwork to say, this is more complicated than it looks? Uh, really? Why? Well, you know, in my family, okay, never mind. You're another global oligarch. Just because you're not from the United States, just because you're a different race, doesn't mean you're not part of a global 1% uh, uh, of willful, knowledgeable exploiters and arbitragers of human misery. And just the fact that, like, oh, I, I dealt with uh, anti-Asian racism in school or whatever. It's like, yeah, that sucks. But you still are in a position wildly exalted beyond the average American. And not because you were, you know what, with all that racism, and I'm still uh, pretty popular... Wow, that must mean I'm really talented. No, no, no. The millions and millions of dollars of your wealthy fucking parasite family helped. But you can't mention that. None of them want to mention that.
because they're all, almost all of them are part of it. And the ones who aren't part of it, they need those jobs. So they're not going to stop kissing ass. So that means everyone has an, has a, 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 in the front of their mind motive to kiss her ass and tell her it's okay. And the, and just like with the Biden thing, the lengths people went to destroy any, uh, pretense that they actually believed any of the socialist bullshit that they've been mouthing for the last four years because it's trendy online. Every defense that they mustered of her is one that's been mustered against criminal scum fucks in every fucking walk of life. Uh, how, a number of people who said, well, it couldn't have been that bad because uh, they were they pled down and uh, didn't serve uh, any jail time. Yeah, because they were fucking rich. Haven't you, don't you people talk about how all the time about how rich people have different justice? You don't think that might be more operative to these millionaires getting a fucking slap on the wrist? I mean, otherwise, how do you explain it? Because the explanation is, oh, they were targeted by the racist ICE and uh, Bush administration. Uh, class, uh, just classic racism. Uh, until the case couldn't sustain itself anymore. Ah, oh, darn it. Really? They didn't plea down to a better deal like every other rich scumbag does when they get caught because they have good lawyers? You wouldn't accept that answer in a, for a second in anybody else. If that was Michael Tracy's family, you wouldn't accept that. You wouldn't say, you know, the police are the ones who said this. And what are laws? You only extend that benefit to somebody who you think can help you in some way down the line. And that means you didn't believe in any of this stuff. You never believed in it for a second. It was an instrument. It was a tool for your social advancement. And people have been talking about that. And it's been like a, this, this running argument on Twitter about like, uh, uh, you know, how much can you test, tr trust people? And like I've said on this place, I've said that like, there's a reason that everybody re resorts to bad faith and that, they're, and that Twitter is such an undialectical un space. And one of the big ones is, there are these people everywhere. There are tons of them. Not everyone, but how the hell are you supposed to tell? How can you tell? And so that uncertainty drives everyone crazy. And they decide to rely on shibboleths. So that's what ends up happening. Because everyone is suspicious. The only people you can trust are the people who mouth the right words to you. The people who know the passwords. But of course, if you know the passwords... You can say anything. If you, it doesn't matter. To, you don't have to believe anything if you know the passwords then. And that's what we have with people. All these motherfuckers have learned the passwords. They're not hard. And now they're just using them to walk everywhere they want. And that's why people treat the place with such distrust and why you can't have an argument there. So I would say, for as horrifying as this all is, and as much as it probably makes you want to go on the internet and scream into the void, and no one knows me, I literally am screaming into the void about it, there's really not going to be any benefit there because none of the stuff I've explained just now, none of those incentives change by you owning somebody. It's, it's, it's big, baked in. It's fixed. There's no changing it. Ah. <sighs> But all these people, I will just say this, who find themselves now just in this position of having to defend Joe Biden as his brain like slowly rolls the clock back and he just thinks that he's in the Senate cloakroom with Strom Thurmond and Jesse Helms all the time and they start doing mammy jokes to one another and, and he's doing it in public on a fucking microphone and you have to defend it. That's what race first politics will get you. That's what any 
That's what any non-class uh, political agenda will get you because you cannot build a coalition that can take over. You can only assert a limited amount of influence uh, within the context of a greater coalition. And if capital is leading that coalition, you're never going to get anything other than scraps. And that's where we find ourselves. Everybody who has very reasonable, reasonable and, and, and non-bad faith arguments for why Republicans are worse for their lives, why Republican governance is more painful and exploitative and miserable for people of, of certain economic groups. It is, and it's harder. But the thing is, it's so much, it's so bad with Democrats that the marginal benefit you're reaping is not anywhere near worth the amount of leverage you're giving up. So what you're keeping at bay is only this much worse than the reality you're going to have. And we know that from Obama. Black wealth eventually basically disappeared. All accumulated black wealth of the last four years, a huge chunk of it disappeared after 2008 and never came back. That's because of Obama's uh, Wall Street bailout and uh, his entire approach to the housing crisis, which was to have it all fall on the, on the shoulders of homeowners. And that meant hugely disproportionate number of relatively recent homeowners, uh, uh, African-American homeowners, wiped out and never came back. That, so what are you avoiding by, ha by, 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 by clinging to the Democrats? It's only in your head. It's a fantasy of what could have been worse. But what is is so terrible. And it will only get worse because there you have no leverage. Watch, watch Biden talk and watch you unable to do anything. Watch him pick Klobuchar for VP, which I think he's going to do because he's, unless this freaks him out, we'll see how long the backlash to this is. But if enough people are going to defend him to defend their own status hierarchy and their own uh, credibility, then it, they might decide it's not a big enough thing to worry about because what they are really worried about are those numbers in the upper Midwest. They're terrified of those numbers in the upper Midwest. And if they think Klobuchar will do better for them there than uh, any uh, uh, black VP or P P VP, VP of any other color than white, they're going to pick her. And then they're going to say, what are you going to do about it? Uh. So Grill, that's, uh, that's the gist of what I'm saying here. As you can see, it's a bunch of bullshit. We have no control over any of it. No matter what Biden says, no matter what Trump says, it's still basically a coin flip because the great mass of American voters are not moved by any of this stuff. And we're just, we're just the fucking, uh, we're the little, um, little birds cleaning the teeth of the crocodile. That's us. And hoping not to get bitten. Hoping we can get our fucking bodies out of the way when he gets hungry. But guess what? Eventually, you get, you're a little slow, and then you get eaten, too. But if you have a class-first politics, you can actually build a coalition that can assert real leverage and demands and pry things away from capital and even challenge capital. It cannot be done in a, because what is... What is your intersection of interests? Because if you have an intersection of oppression, that's, that's explanatory. I think that's a useful, useful rubric to explain oppression. But then what do you do about it? What's your intersectional uh, praxis? What's your intersectional uh, interest point to mobilize around?
I mean, for the most part, the one that's most prevalent, the most, the one that reflects most the oppressions we're talking about is class. Because racial oppression is felt by degrees, and those degrees are pretty much track very, very strongly with class. All right, so those are a few things I wanted to get off my chest, wanted to get off, wanted to stop talking about it. Got my gears all grinded up, but I have, want to get these ideas out just so that I understand them. And I have one other thing that I wanted to say. This is Matt's movie corner, and then maybe we'll take some questions. Uh, so I finally, after fucking months and months, and I said this a couple days ago, someone asked if I'd seen Drag by Con Dragged ac uh, Across Concrete, no, because I was doing this waiting game to see when it was available on some streaming service to see for free. And I was actually about to give up last night and fucking just click on the thing and watch it, even though, and pay for it. It was, it had, it would have come to HBO, which I have, so I didn't have to pay extra for it. So I watched Dragged Across Concrete before, last night. And I gotta say, I think it's his best film. I've, I've liked all three of the Craig Zeller films. Uh, I really and I really liked uh, uh, Brawl and Cell, not, Cell Block 99. I think I might even like this one more. Uh, uh, Mike D'Angelo, the critic, uh, said that Zaylor is kind of trying to be the modern day Don Siegel, and I think that is precisely correct. That is his game. Like if you asked him who he's trying to be, even if he didn't know, uh, the real answer is he's trying to be Don Siegel, just muscular, you know, uh, meat and potatoes, American reactionary exploitative exploitation shit. You know, uh, like the the, the uh, white male id, you know, unleashed in a world it never made or doesn't get to make anymore, uh, you know, smashing against the confines of society um, and doing so in the most violent way possible. So I think he really pulls it off in that movie. Uh, and a lot of people got mad at it because it's his most explicitly political yet, because he made the first movie, Bone Tomahawk, and some people muttered a little bit because it has like these bestial uh, Native American tribes people, cannibals, as the bad guys. And, you know, he makes pains to distinguish them from other Native American tribes, but people sort of whispered a little bit, I don't know, man, that's a little problematic. Then he made Brawl in Cell Block 99, which has Vince Vaughn going to war with the cartels and has a lot of racially coded language, and it has kind of a, you know, a MAGA flair to it, uh, even though it's all very subtle. And everyone's like, oh, I think he's really one. In this one, he just lets it out. He has scenes where the cops are literally just sitting around going, damn cell phone cameras won't allow us to do our jobs, thanks to the damn media. And they're like, yes, true. Uh, and he's got these little vignettes that are just like, they might as well, they could be short films directed by, by if TPUSA had any talent behind it. And, but it's all shot in like the house style of sort of post post-millennial, uh, like, prestige programming. Uh, and it really made me realize that of all the people who have tried to resurrect the exploitation genre in the 21st century and try to do exploitation movies, like postmodern exploitation movies, he is the one who gets them the most. Uh, one, I think, because he is a reactionary, and what he gets the thing that is that most of these people who do neo-exploitation don't get, which is that exploitation films are inherently, to one degree or another, reactionary. Specifically, vigilantism shit, or I mean cop shit, is fucking, it's reactionary. 
anything that's about somebody getting fed up and doing an insane amount of violence on people outside the law is reactionary in that it uh, it credits like violence as a solution rather than any kind of socially like cooperative endeavor towards a, res a resolution of conflict. Uh, that's not terrible. It doesn't mean it's a but it's unwatchable. I mean, people think that now because we've we've bound up our politics and our art so much that we can't get them straight, and we're all anxiety riddled about it all the time. But it's a it's it's a it's a, a reactionary genre, and therefore the best people to make it are reactionaries. And the way that he like threads in the right wing stuff in the in the movie, which is also by the way filled with incredibly good, deeply felt uh, like social observation and commentary and texture. Uh, because it's not vapid, it's not uh, it's not dogmatic. That stuff is in there because you can't. One of the big problems with trying to make a neo exploitation movie is that you can't shock people the way you could with exploitation films because people have seen everything. We're all desensitized. Violence doesn't do anything. Violence doesn't move the needle. How do you make violence move the needle anymore? And Zayla realizes it has to be in contrast to something. The violence has to come as a contrast to the other things in the movies. That didn't used to be the case because the movie was a contrast to everything else, but now everything is movie, so the, it had, the contrast has to come inside the film itself. And so the contrast of this, uh, this staid sort of Paul Haggis-y vibe with just explicit reactionary content, it shocks you a little bit, it jars you. Just the way that like the, the, the very, um, quiet, measured tone of all of his movies makes their explosions of extreme violence shocking and jarring. It actually does jolt you the way that these guys, anybody making like ironic exploitation movies doesn't really get around. They don't really grasp the needle of it. Uh, and that is why, even though I would not actually want her to do this, uh, because no one, should go, no one with talent should go near Marvel, it's just a giant machine that sucks talent, uh, it leaves just create, uh, uh, uncreative, dead-eyed husks in its wake because they see God. like It's like the fucking lighthouse. They go to Disney and they see the frozen head of Walt Disney in a vault and it's throbbing and it has like black eyes and they stare into Disney's black eyes and they come out a husk because they've seen into the heart of the dream machine and they know that it is actually uh, the fucking mind of Satan. So... I would not want him to actually do this because it would destroy him. Like it's going to destroy everybody who who does, who fucks with Marvel, uh, film wise. But he is the only person I could think of who could possibly make something good out of the Punisher right now. Because if anybody saw the Marvel, the the Netflix Marvel show with uh, jo Joe Barenthal, which is dog shit. One of the big reasons is CGI blood, which is of course out of here. And something I know that Zeller would never allow, by the way. They didn't just do CGI blood on that show. They did CGI muzzle flashes on the guns, which is just the fucking lowest level of chintzy bullshit. Why am I even watching this? And I know Zeller wouldn't do that. But, what the, but the other thing that made that thing bad and unwatchable is that it's woke. They tried to make fucking Punisher woke. Because they have this thing that has a context. The Punisher has a context of like coming out of the reactionary ferment of the 70s. The same thing they gave us Death Wish and Dirty Harry and all this other stuff. Because of the huge rise in violent crime and the huge rise in racial anxiety and racial friction, uh, he pops out. And, and 
there is no way to make... You can make him the villain, I guess, if you want it to be woke, but you cannot make him the protagonist, the traditional protagonist of something, and make him woke. Because vigilantism like that is reactionary, inherently. Going outside the bounds of law to use violence against someone, you individually... Not as some sort of some like revolutionary process of, of changing the mode of production or the social order, but as an individual, that's, I'm sorry, that's reactionary. He is. Frank Castle is a reactionary. And just because you fucking give him, uh, what, Blackwater and Proud Boys to kill, that doesn't change that fact. And, and, but, the, but the guys who make these shows are all good liberals. And so they're very nervous and very anxious about that. So they work backwards. I guarantee you. When they said we're doing Punisher, and they're only doing Punisher for money, none of them are doing Punisher out of inspiration. They wouldn't do Punisher. Nobody would. It's a fucking comic book. They're adults. They wouldn't do any of this shit if they wanted to. They're doing it because it's where the money is. And the money says this is the thing people like, so we want you to make more of them. This is the thing that came out of this specific cultural moment. This is the thing that, uh, this is the thing that stands in for a, 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 a mode of male anxiety at a certain hinge point in American history. An expression of like nihilistic uh, of, of violence to overcome social conflict. What are you going to do with it? Oh, well, okay. Well, that we can't make it that because that, uh, that would be bad. And people would watch it and then they would want to be like him. It's like they want to be like him anyway, idiots. You made him woke. Congratulations. Did it stop fucking uh, fascist Nazi cops from putting the fucking uh, Punisher thing on their, on, their, uh, on their vehicles? Did it stop serial killing psychopath Chris Kyle from putting it on his fucking flak jacket? He's not woke. The fact that they've appropriated his symbol shows that. You're the one appropriating him. You're appropriating him by making him woke. He can't be. You, either, you have to deal with that fact. You want to make him the villain, that's like one choice, or you have to take him as he is. And they're not comfortable with that, and so they have to reverse engineer. Zaylor would take Frank Castle as he, as he was, and that would be... That would make for viewing that would make people go, oh my God. And it would be like, oh, that's a bad idea. But unless you're accepting the tip of war worldview and you're willing to put that on record, that you watch something and then you do it or you believe what it says discreetly, not socially, but discreetly. As a, like, obviously, we're all, we are all nothing but like the accruance of our media consumption, but not that's the accruance. On an, on a, on a, on an individual level, you cannot be... Uh, you cannot be moved into action by any one piece of media. Which is a thing that nobody can get their head around. No, all media has to be good all the time because then we will all we will all be watching it at the same time. We'll all get the same message and the Care Bear stare will just burst out of our chests and we will all live in harmony forever. And the thing is, that's the only thing they have as a, as a model for social change because if you deny class politics... Like, this, like, and if you say America is indelibly racist and therefore we can't change capitalism, uh, then all you can do is, like, hector people and make art and do posts until there's so many art and so many posts that everyone just, at one moment, everyone from, from the irredeemable, or enough people, I guess they would say, not everyone, but, but like, uh, to, to 51% will all just snap into, into uh, mutual understanding. That's their only that's their only hope. So, like I so yeah, I really like Dragged Across Concrete. Uh, late this po post uh, a punished Mel is 
honestly, on a roll. Great performances. I haven't seen all of it, but uh, Bloodfather was really good. Uh, and he was really good in this. Um, Hacksaw Ridge has some of the best fucking just grody-ass violence uh, I've seen in a movie in a long time. And if he does make a... He's the one director who, if he actually does remake The Wild Bunch, I'll allow it. Because he's the one guy who kind of gets peck and paws like psycho, religious, ecstatic communion with film violence. Because I think for most other purveyors of film violence, it's either rote or uh, sublimated misogyny or a joke. And it is not any of those things for Mel Gibson. It is expiation. It is salvation, which it was for Peckinpah. So, thumbs up for Dragged Across Con Concrete. And yeah, if you're going to make an exploitation movie and you're a left-winger, you can. You just have to leave it at the door. You know, you just have to take it as it comes instead of trying to de deform it into something it can never be. I'm trying to... I actually, when I was in high school, I read a biography of Pam, Sam Peckinpah. You can tell this was before the internet. That would I would never imagine now reading a biography of Sam Peckinpah. But I did because there was nothing to distract me. Certainly not girls. I was trying, I'm trying to check to see if uh, Peckinpah was uh, Catholic. Can't remember. I don't think he was. He's, he's like a, his family was like Western pioneers, so I don't think so. But he certainly had that Catholic fixation on uh, on uh, blood, the sanctity of blood. So yeah, if you 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 can be a left wing maker of uh, of exploitation movies, and and somebody says the Purge. Uh, the Purge movies are actually an interesting case because their premise is such that like uh, that they do have a actual left wing text, which is also possible. Like the text of anything can be any politics you want it to be. It's the subtext I'm talking about. I'm talking about it's it's. Uh, it's um, it's heart, and that's why the third. That's why uh, election day is so weak at the end because they go lib, they go lib at the end because they can't handle the the implications of the genre they're working in, and also they use fucking uh, CGI. And for me, you're not doing you're not making exploitation unless you're using. Squibs. I know that CGI is cheaper now, so therefore squibs are actually the luxury Cadillac A-list thing. But I'm sorry, you can find somewhere else to cut. You can always find something else to cut. If they could put squibs in surviving edge weapons, you can find the budget for squibs in your movie. They did squibs in fucking Wild Bunch, for Christ's sake. <laughs> uh, we are looking to do that script reading 
Uh, actually, I should bring up network. I don't know. I don't, they might not want to do network, but I would like to do network. Uh, maybe they think that. No, I would. That, I think they would find that they would think that would be too uh, uh, too self centered of me. Although you know, he's not the main character really. It's uh, William Holden. Could definitely see Will playing William Holden. But we are probably going to do Miller's Crossing if we can get everybody on board. Uh, I think I think we've we were trying to figure out like the terms of service and whether that would be a copyright infringement. But apparently, if you just do it and don't like leave it up, there's not any wheel way that's going to get brought down. So we're going to try to do that. Uh, guess which character I will play. Bernie? Yeah, no. I'm not playing uh, Leo either now. I think we're getting uh, Felix. Uh, how can the Coen brothers make incredible, insightful films and then be libs? Because art and politics aren't the same thing. Like, there's political truth and there's artistic truth. And, like, artistic truth is, like, a prism of all truths. And any piece of art is only able to get, like, one or two refracted rays, right, of the prism. And maybe it might get a little bit of political truth in there. But it's mostly going to be personal. It's mostly going to be experiential and aesthetic. And it's, and it's going to be abstract. And then you have to build from that. You have to actually build a personality and like a, a fucking spiritual sense of yourself that you can then build politics on top of. You can't just have it imported to you directly like fucking uh, a firmware update from the, every movie you watch. These things have lives of their own. Like, like uh, what, what we're all trying... I mean, my God, especially when you consider how collaborative film is as a, as a genre, how, how, many, how many minds, how many efforts, how many decisions are made... The idea that any of this stuff has, uh, that there's any coordinating anything, you need to grab, you just have to be open. And the thing is, you might not find any, and that's fine too, but you have to be open to the, the magic, basically, the, the moments of grace, the sublimity of any piece of art. Because the, it's not necessarily going to be resonating on frequencies of the political, but there are other frequencies of truth and beauty that exist and that can be expressed by almost anyone in any place and time. Rudy Ro Rudolph Wor Rudolph Wor Wurlitzer, yes. I didn't know he was from Cincinnati. Uh, yeah, uh, his book Quake is really good.
What is the, all right? This is an interesting question, just because it's so weird. What is the governance ownership of Chapo LLC? Anything socialist in its structure? I don't know what that means. What I mean, we all own it equally, so I guess that is. So it's like owner operated or like worker operated because we're also the the thing is is that we're not we're not workers, but we're also not capitalists. We're craftsmen. We are we are this cottage industry craftsmen of, of a bygone era. Like that is that is people want to know like what's the podcaster niche, uh, at least like the the ones who do self uh, like uh, direct distribution like us as opposed to ones that have uh, 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 an ad network or something. It's it's it's. Would you like my wares? I like I make I'm, I'm a cooper basically. We're all like word coopers, and you come into our shop and you buy our barrels or not, but we made the barrels. And then we get the money for the barrels. That's it. We're not socialists because it's not. It's a pre-modern form of. Uh, it's 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 a it's a it's a remnant. I mean, over time it'll go away. Like all non-capitalist social relationships will go away, but it still exists in uh, in fragmentary form. I have seen upstream color. That guy is wild. He just did an interview where he said, I basically can't do movies anymore. I'm sick of fucking trying to make money, get money off of them to make them, which really should remind you, I mean, how can any of these things that you got, that make, that spent, when you see filmmakers of genuine talent just give up because of how hard it is to raise money for things that have like an actual vision behind it, how little... Does must people care about uh, uh, at, at, in like a, a basic artistic like sense of ownership sense of care how little must everyone care when they're making fucking you know uh, uh, Avengers how little must everyone care in order to put up with the demands of that much money the requirements of that degree of investment you would have to just turn your actual artistic investment into the thing into a little fucking kernel. So how could the thing coming from that collective shrug be good? Why is Stephen King's twits, tweets so dog shit? I think because he's an old guy trying to tweet more than anything. It's not a form that uh, that's that's that he came into. It's a form for people who, with a completely different social experience, which is why old people in general are terrible on there. I mean, and, and the, the thing I don't understand about the people who cling so hard to the idea 
that politics must be expressed in art and, and, and has to on a moral level. Like if you push them, why does it have to be this way? First, it might be something about how well, you know, it hurts, it hurts people of this groups to see things that aren't sensitive to them. But at the base, it's no, people see this bad stuff and then they have the bad thoughts. And if enough of them uh, see the good stuff, they'll have the good thoughts. And I don't understand how you can have the 2016 election happen and not realize that that cannot be true. Or if it's true, it's true to such a like fractional degree that all the pressure in the world in that direction is not going to move anything. Because the entire culture was arrayed against Trump. Every cultural output was against Trump. And it didn't matter. I might do a Spanish Civil War episode. We'll see. It's gonna, I, like I said, my hope, my my goal would be to get everyone mad at me. Uh, Hunt for Red October is one of those great man. That was a real stretch in the late '80s, early '90s of just some perfect action movies. Really, it it, it sound, I don't want to. I sound old, but I fuck it. I'll say it. They don't make them like that anymore. Just perfect little propulsive thrillers. The same time as like Die Hard and uh, stuff, Predator. Good, check it out. Hunt for Red October. Crimson Tide's also good. I think Hunt for Red October is better, but they're both good. Uh, Crimson Tide also better than ninety nine percent of Ridley Scott's films. So if one again, another another map, strike one for uh, Tony Scott. What chapter am I in on Moby Dick? Uh, I just finished. Uh, I just finished The Gam, uh, which is a delightful little chapter. I might read one quick chapter to end tonight. I don't know. I gotta see if I can find one. Here we go. Uh, my next chapter will be The Town Hose Story. Someone, someone had the town hoe, uh, give their tail. That one was very weak. I think it's because it's kind of, it's really overcast today and kind of gloomy. I don't think a lot of people are outside. Oh, wait a minute, never mind. Sometimes it'll, they'll go and they'll gutter out a little bit. And then I think they get a little embarrassed that they stopped and then they'll all kind of dare each other to go back up. I will read Ulysses. I'm just not. I'm gonna reread. I'm getting. I'm trying to go through the 20th century. I'm trying to like go through levels of like semantic uh, uh, facility. You know, I feel. I feel very comfortable with Moby Dick. I'm gonna go to Gravity's Rainbow, which I've always felt harder a harder time getting my head around. And then I'm gonna do uh, Ulysses. I went through a major Kurt Vonnegut phase when I was in college. I read like, not all of them, but a good chunk. Galapagos is really good. Uh, Breakfast is Champions, also very, very good. But I, like most people, the first one of his I've read was Slaughterhouse-Five in high school. And it's one of those books that does a thing to certain people, not everybody, but you, if you're in the right frame of mind and if you have the right demographic background probably, it hits you. 
it hits different, and it really does make you start thinking differently about the world. Someone wants me to read The Lee Shore. I'll get back to that one. Might not be there yet. Oh, somebody wants me to talk about the Demiurge. All right, I'll see if I can uh, find this thing, and then I'll talk a little bit about the Demiurge. So, it's in uh, the Gnostic Christians, who were an early Christian sect, they believed that the material world was essentially created by an evil spirit that intervened between God and eternity to create a false version of the world that we all live in, in material bodies created for the purpose of keeping us from each other uh, and from God, most importantly. And that it was our duty in life to try to transcend that category through concentration of will and, and faith and spirit, gnosis as it's called, uh, to understand that higher truth. And I think that that's a useful metaphor for the way that we all live in a reality that is really constructed by uh, uh, an evil demon, that evil demon being, demon, that evil demon being the collective historical weight of all humans who came before us, the history of all dead generations weighing on the minds of the living. We live in structures that we are born into that we did not have any hand in creating, and those those structures def are deformed. Like our expect our our expectations of things, our our ideology that we operate under, our expectations of other people, our reward systems are deformed. They are they're they're bent away from harmony with nature, harmony with other people, harmony with God. They are bent towards rudeness and and, and hatred and uh, and uh, exploitation, domination, fear, misery, because of the intervening, uh, because of the failures of, of generations of people to see the world as it really is because of all of the all of the things that they have to deal with that others have placed on them. So that's the demiurge. And the thing is is that we can we can transcend it. We can. We can we can bring the tim the crooked timber of reality closer to a, to an even keel. Uh, but it just takes a lot of fucking time and a lot of faith. And and a lot of will. And those things are all sapped by the culture we live in. The Demiurge basically directing us away from the holy and towards uh, towards selfishness. But, all, but selfishness is, at the end of the day, self-defeating. Because we can have nothing without each other. We can have nothing without each other.
my favorite chapter. I'm not sure yet which one I really like the most. But let's do the reshore. Here it is. Oh, yes, this is very good. Well, it's so short. And it's so perfect. It's like three, four perfect, five perfect paragraphs. Some chapters back, one Bulkington was spoken of. A tall, new-landed new mariner encountered in New Bedford at the inn. When on that shivering winter's night, the Pequod thrust her vindictive bows into the cold, malicious waves, who should I see standing at her helm but Bulkington? I looked with sympathetic awe and fearfulness upon the man, who in midwinter just landed from a four years' dangerous voyage, could so unrestingly push off again for still another tempestuous turn. The land seemed scorching to his feet. Wonderfulest things are ever the unmentionable. Deep memories yield no epitaphs. This six-inch chapter is the stoneless grave of Bulkington. Let me only say that it fared with him as with the storm-tossed ship that miserably drives along the leeward land. The port would fain give succor. The port is pitiful. In the port is safety, comfort, hearthstone, supper, warm blankets, friends, all that's kind to our mortalities. But in that gale, the port, the land... Is that ship's direst jeopardy? She must fly all hospitality. One touch of land, though it but graze the keel, would make her shudder through and through. With all her might, she crowds all sail offshore, and once in so doing, fights against the very winds that fain would blow her homeward. Seeks all the lashed sea's landlessness again, for refuge's sake, forlornly rushing into peril, her only friend, her bitterest foe. Ye know ye now, Belkington? Glimpses do ye seem to see of that mortally intolerable truth, that all deep earnest thinking is but the intrepid effort of the soul to keep the open independence of her sea, while the wildest winds of heaven and earth conspire to cast her on the treacherous, slavish shores. But as in landlessness alone resides the highest truth, shorelessness indefinite is God. So better is it to perish in that howling infinite than being gloriously dashed upon the lee, even if that were safety. For worm-like then, oh, who would crave and crawl to land? Terror of the terrible, is all this agony so vain? Take heart, take heart, O Bulkington. Bear thee grimly, demigod. Up from the spray of thy ocean perishing, straight up leaps thy apotheosis. That's actually a good chapter to read right after talking about Gnosticism, because I feel like that if you want to understand like what I mean by like the demiurgical nature of reality, this thing, the glim... Um, all deep, earnest thinking, prayer, meditation, communion with our understanding of the infinite, which that's God in any language, is but the intrepid effort of the soul to keep the open independence of her sea, while the wildest winds of slave of heaven and earth conspire to cast her on the treacherous, slavish shore. Because we have to live in this world, and living in this world distracts us and pulls us away from our understanding of our mutual interdependence and, the, and, in fact, our mutual identicalness. And it pulls us off of that beam. And that, that is, and then we make a world that is demonic. And we make that world. And all collectively, we are the demiurge. So you are the demiurge, I am the demiurge. To later, greater and smaller extents, we're all building a world that makes it hard for people who are living in it to find God, whatever that means. To find a, a transcendence from this seeming prison of, of, of isolation and, and confusion and loneliness and fear 
This doom, doom to die, doom to eternal night without ever understanding any of it. All right, guys. Uh, talk to you soon. This is a good one. Bye-bye.